The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. following consecutively subjects in the Sermon on the Mount, still in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is covered most fully in Matthew 5 through 7 in a more abbreviated form in Luke. We usually look at the Matthew version because there's more detail. There is, however, only a small bit on the subject before us today, a hard subject, a painful subject, more so for some than others, but one that is, has to be addressed. Jesus addressed it, the subject of marriage and divorce. Now read Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and then I'm going to add to it other words that are also from Jesus in Matthew, but uh, further along they bring a little more light on the same subject, saying substantially the same thing, but with somewhat more detail attached. So I'll also read from Matthew 19. First, our text, our main text, Matthew 5, starting at 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now over to Matthew 19. I'll pick it up at verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is the word of God. Father, give us compassionate but correctly understanding ears and eyes to receive this word and to apply it in our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't think you'd argue with me that there is almost no earthly unhappiness any darker or more bitter than that of a broken marriage. I don't know that from firsthand 
experience because God has blessed me with a wonderful marriage and honestly divorce has never even been in the universe of our considerations even though pastors and wives do raise their voices at one another now and then and do disagree over things now and then but I have been a first-hand witness of the breaking of marriage far too many times that I don't even want to remember my experience I would compare to that of a emergency trauma surgeon who maybe has never had his own bones broken or his own body torn up needing major surgical repair but he has done that repair and witnessed those bodies the auto accident victims the motorcycle accident victims at close quarters and he knows only too well how painful and how terrible it can be. Jesus did not shirk speaking plain words about marriage and divorce. And we must not evade his plain words, even though we might say, isn't there a more pleasant subject we could talk about? He chose to put this subject before us. And by the way, just as a personal word, if you think a pastor's life is an easy life, this morning I preached twice on divorce and in between explained the doctrine of election. So uh, if you want my morning, you can have it. Uh, But it's mine, not yours, so I will carry it out. Here in Matthew 5, and its parallel or, or expansion in Matthew 19, we have the Savior's clear, comprehensive teaching about marriage. They don't say everything that is to be said. And I'll acknowledge right up front today, there's another very important passage in 1 Corinthians 7 about leaving a marriage being another ground that Paul raises, and that we're just not going there today. There's only so much time. So if you're saying, well, you didn't speak about that, you have to allow me another half hour if we were going to do that one today. But there are people both in this room and within the sound of my voice who will hear this message who have experienced divorce firsthand. I'm glad you know that I come to this passage because it's next in order of something we're considering and not because I'm choosing it to persecute you or pick on you, which I'm almost always accused of whenever I preach on the subject, that I uh, chose this for somebody's individual attention or rebuke. That is utterly false. If you haven't been through divorce yourself or contemplated it yourself, you surely have family members. Carol and I do have family members who have divorced. And it would almost be unthinkable for, for you to be someone who would say, I don't even know anybody who's gone through divorce. I can't quite think there'd be anybody here whose circle of friends or relations is that limited that you don't know someone who has been through this painful condition of life. We ask the question that was put to Jesus, is divorce ever able to be considered as biblically sanctioned. Does the Bible forbid it? Absolutely. And therefore forbid remarriage? Absolutely. Do we even have a correct understanding of the forbidding of remarriage that is here in verse 32? There are people who don't read the same thing from verse 32 as we think should be read. There are pastors out there today and always have been who want a simple approach to life And they basically put a sign, it might be an invisible sign, but it's 
posted, so to speak, on their office door saying, don't come to me to ask about remarriage if you're divorced. No matter what, no matter what your situation was as innocent party, guilty party, I won't even talk about the subject. I won't touch it. That's a ministerial cop-out. We have to be able to look at this subject and realize there are difficult decisions to be made. There are areas today, especially when we get into, and I'll mention a little bit, when we get into what is sexual sin after all. Is pornography viewing year after year equivalent to the adultery that Jesus was talking about? I'll tip my hand. I believe it can be. So the world is more complicated today than it was perhaps in a simpler day when adultery meant a physical relationship. Contrary to some opinions, there is such a thing as, quote, biblical divorce in the sense that it's not what God ideally wants for anyone, but he does recognize that there are times and conditions when it can be an exception to his law and to his ideal will. And so divorce, we find, is regulated, both in these Matthew passages and in 1 Corinthians 7. It is recognized that there are times when it can occur and remarriage can occur, even if that is far from God's original ideal. Above all, today I hope you would take away the understanding that despite the what may seem like the hard edges of the law of God exalting marriage, our God is the same compassionate Savior and Father towards divorced people, whether they were the perpetrators, the causes of the divorce, or merely the more passive victims of it, our Savior is the same Savior to such folk as he is to you or anyone else you know. So I ask you to listen to God's word here to understand how a God who in Malachi can say, I absolutely hate divorce, can nevertheless have the compassion and integrity to love divorced people. First of all, we have to look at Jesus' emphasis, and it comes in both of these texts I've read in a parallel way, on God's original ideal for marriage. Many of you know we issued a document that took a major piece of writing and approval by our session. I trust that many of you have it and have read it, called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, in which we try to wrestle with at least some of the many questions that arise today around our sexuality and and what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man, what marriage is about, uh, all kinds of things. And in that document, we pointed, as Jesus does, to things as they were established by God originally at the creation. You go all the way back to the scene of creation in Genesis 2, and already principles are laid down for what is marriage, what is a proper relationship between a man and a woman, what is a man, what is a woman. We look back to Genesis and then move forward. We don't find these things just somewhere in the New Testament, although there's much there as well. Well, the situation broadly described that Jesus was dealing with here, both in uh, Matthew 5 and in 19, the one is really just sort of follows up the other, 
as people who were coming with trick questions or looking for loopholes. They were trying to say, well, we guess we have some idea what marriage is, but isn't there a loophole somewhere? Isn't there an exception somewhere? Didn't Moses do this, and therefore we can do this? They were looking for an easy way out from the institution of marriage. And they came before Jesus, some of them as liberals on that subject, some of them as harsh conservatives on the subject. But to them both, Jesus basically said, look, before you're going to talk about plan B for a man or woman, which you call divorce, let's understand what plan A is. The Savior had, or the Creator had plan A in mind. I have made a habit, at least in the last 20 years, I guess, of every wedding where I preside of opening the wedding, the call to worship of the wedding, I rather like to insist, should be Genesis 2 describing, just in a very brief summary, the creation of woman as a companion for man, what I like to call the eureka moment, Adam experience, when there was no companion for him, and then God brought him this beautiful creature, and he said, wow! Maybe your Bible doesn't have that word, but let me tell you, that's what it means. That's what the Hebrew means, wow! Here at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here's my companion. Here is the one that's unlike anything from the animal kingdom. A dog can keep me company, but a dog is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Apologies to my wife on that one, who's the dog lover. But uh, the exact thing, we don't have time to summarize all of Genesis on that subject, but... Notice the phrase that Jesus says in 19, chapter 19. It was not this way from the beginning. Whenever he spoke about these subjects, he always pointed back to the archetype, the model, the original design. Here is what God intended. Now, man has messed it up, and Moses got into the act and said, well, you can write out a certificate, make sure you do that, and then your estranged wife has something to sort of identify her, kind of a passport to go through life and say, well, here's who I am maritally. I was married, but now I'm not. And that is not saying that this is what God originally wanted. Now, you may know we have all kinds of machinations in society today. We basically have what we call no-fault divorce in modern America and most Western societies. Courts no longer ask, as they once did, this was true quite rigorously in Britain. You watch some of the uh, masterpiece theater kind of shows about uh, 19th century Britain or something, and if somebody wants out of a marriage, they've got to go and spend a weekend with somebody else at a hotel and then have the clerk at the hotel say, oh yes, Mr. Smith checked in with an attractive lady, and that would be testimony that could stand in court for him to get a divorce for an act of adultery. Well, we don't run around doing that anymore today, particularly. We have so-called no fault. Today we just say, oh, irreconcilable differences covers everything. Or I don't love her anymore, as if marriage was only about sentiment and emotion and romance. Don't quote me wrong. It is about those things, but that's not all it's about. 
It's also about covenant and pledge and vows taken before God. Genesis 2 teaches that marriage is so holy. I don't know if you all get this or not. When it says, let a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Do you understand what it's saying there? It's saying the the, the fundamental human relationship in the beginning of your life is that with your parents. You owe to your parents a great deference, a great obedience, a great respect that you don't owe anyone else the same way. But suddenly, you're married and you take vows, and all of a sudden, while you're not, of course, to spurn your parents or kick them in the teeth or throw them out, but you don't owe the same primary allegiance to them anymore. You owe it to someone else, the one person to whom you have vowed to cherish this person and honor this person with your whole life. And it's even saying, look, parents, you better know this too, because if you think all of your sons or all of your daughters' allegiance is just the same to you as it ever was before, it's not. In fact, parents, maybe I sound crude, need to be told in a manner of speaking, according to Scripture, butt out. You don't belong in the sacred circle of allegiance and honor that a husband and wife have to have exclusively for each other. And you have the potential even to do damage if you don't know that. Now that's biblical theology spoken in plain language. There's a new person before God. Ephesians 5 compares marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. What higher comparison could you possibly make? And it's saying... You two people are a a new seamless person that if anybody gets into that circle subscribed around you, think of it like a circular castle, if you wish, with a drawbridge and a moat, and the husband and the wife dwell inside the castle and guard very, very well where that drawbridge goes down and anyone else is admitted into that circle of commitment and honor and respect and love. Intruders aren't allowed. Intruders are basically adulterers. Or maybe they're meddling parents. But they don't belong within that circle, at least not in the primary sense. And so we have a scripture like Malachi 2.15, where the Lord God says through the prophet Malachi, speaking about some basic issues that Israel had gotten wrong, do not break faith with the wife of your youth, For the Lord God of Israel says, I hate divorce. I hate breaking up of original vows made before me. Now, the discussion that we sort of listen in upon in Matthew 5 and 19 is a discussion between Jesus and and different scholars of the law of God talking about Deuteronomy 24.1. You could look back there if you wish. I won't read it. But Deuteronomy 24.1 was the passage they were discussing where Moses commanded, all right, he recognized there was a lot of things going on and it was primarily husbands divorcing wives, not vice versa, in that patriarchal society. Husbands were deciding for some reason or other they were tired of their wife. Maybe she had actually sinned against them in adultery or something. Uh, It doesn't uh, discuss the fact that maybe they had sinned against her in adultery, but the husbands were putting their wives away. 
all that Moses had to say about that was, be sure you give her a certificate. Give her, in a sense, her walking papers that would allow her to show to anyone what her condition in life was because a woman's uh, existence and sustenance was a very fragile thing if she did not have a husband. Well, Jesus said it was because of the hardness of your hearts, because you literally wanted to have throwaway wives that Moses gave you this. It wasn't about what marriage was supposed to be in the first place. Now, there are various people that have written on this, and I tend to consult the ones that I know, first of all, exalt the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and are the most conservative in their interpretations, lest you think I'm quoting from some kind of liberals on the subject. John Murray of Scotland and Philadelphia, the late John Murray, he was a real scholar in the Bible, had this to say, I quote him, Divorce is contrary to a divine institution. It is the sundering in two by man of what God constituted. Divorce is the breaking of a seal engraved by the hand of God himself. Maybe you think that's too idealistic. I just did a wedding a couple weeks ago here. have one coming in June again. And you think, well, pastor, don't make it such a big deal. After all, you can go to a judge. You can go to a justice of the peace and... In five minutes, a few words are said, and a certificate is signed, and that's it. You're making too much of it. I am not making too much of it. Before God, marriage stands upon a throne, and it must be respected as being on that throne established by God. Any attack upon it is viewed as an attack upon the institution of God and a covenant made before God. So God has a very high view of marriage, and that's what he wants you to think about before you start saying, how do I use the loophole? How do I get out of this? Mine must be an exception. I need to jump ship here and uh, just need to know what must I do to make that happen. Well, let's look secondly then at God's regulation of divorce, at least in Matthew 5 and 19. As I said, there's other thing that we could look at in 1 Corinthians 7, but will not do it this morning. In these chapters, we have one divinely sanctioned concession or exception, if you wish the word, to the do not divorce. Jesus is saying, yes, there is one occasion when divorce may happen. He doesn't say it has to happen, but it may happen. And that is what the ESV correctly translates sexual sin. It's a broad term. You may have heard before the term in the Greek is porneia. You can pretty easily guess what English that leads to. Pornography, sexuality that is twisted from its God-given intention. Sexuality that is occurring in an unjust or unlicensed, if you will, relationship. And that includes all kinds of sexual sin. I mentioned earlier, today we have a whole new dynamic that makes things quite tough. You know, it used to be, all right, did the man have an illicit relationship with a prostitute or someone else's wife or what? Uh, Okay, that's still pornea today. But today, the whole definition has been made, as you can understand, very, very difficult. 
when we have illicit sexuality going on on our cell phones and our computers and all over the place, crazy relationships that people have, sending nude pictures to one another, receiving uh, pornographic literature or pornographic photos. We believe, many of us, I don't know where your judgment falls on this, we might have an interesting discussion, that consistent, persistent, unrepentant use of pornography equates to adultery. We can cite cases, I won't. We could go into cases of husbands who've turned completely away from intimacy with their wives because they have too much intimacy with their computers. Is that person abandoning the covenant to his wife if he will not repent after being rebuked? If he will persist in that, we believe he is committing the kind of adultery Jesus was talking about here. And we have acted accordingly in our advice towards people. It's kind of like a, a, you had a barbarian, you know, at the, at the gate of your... Remember I gave you that image of the castle and the moat and the drawbridge. It's as if you had a barbarian at the gate saying, let down the bridge, I need to come in, and he comes barging in, smashing things as he comes, wrecking things, and moves in to stay. Well, that's what pornography does many times in a relationship. It invades the innermost space of a marriage that belongs to a man and a woman and them alone. And Jesus taught that divorce is wrong and remarriage afterward would also be wrong except when this kind of circumstance occurs. Now, to just let you understand how down-to-earth this is, I remind you, you could look back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And the most famous divorce that almost happened but didn't. You're probably already coming up with that in your mind. Joseph of Nazareth, remember? Discovered that his intended and betrothal in those days was a legal relationship. It had to be broken by divorce. He discovered that Mary was with a child. Well, I don't know if Joseph took biology 101 or not, but he understood where children come from. And he knew that Mary must have had a sexual relationship. And it says, Joseph, being a righteous man, decided in his mind that he would quietly put her aside. That was his right. If that actually was what had happened, Jesus, even here, much years later, recognized that right. In other words, he recognized the right for someone to abort himself, in a manner of speaking. But of course, it wasn't what Joseph thought it was. Mary was pregnant by the power and spirit of God. But even there, you see, even though Joseph had the grounds, even though he could have done that and walked away clean and with his head held high and not have been unduly cruel to Mary, he didn't do it. He didn't have to do it. Divorce in this exception is not inevitable or mandated. Reconciliation, forgiveness is always possible. And that's the first place we always try to go. Think of the amazing, astonishing example of Hosea in the Old Testament, who married a wife who was illicit, immoral, took many men, really lived the life of a prostitute, 
And God commanded Hosea as an example of teaching a lesson about his forgiveness of people. Take Gomer, that wife, back again, Hosea, and be faithful to her and honor her. And you say, wow, I just think that's amazing. Why did God require that? It was a hard thing for Hosea to do. But he did it to show the heart of God, that even when divorce is allowable, it doesn't have to be followed. Now hear me carefully, because at this point there are readers of this verse, Matthew 5, 32, who don't read it the same way I do, in the same way that many people do. Jesus is saying, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We believe that the exception, the exception of sexual immorality, you see, applies here both to the act of divorce and to the act of remarriage. Do you understand what I, what I mean by that? Some people would be saying here, all right, um, you're allowed by Jesus to get divorced, but just don't remarry ever. It really doesn't say that. What it is saying is the wrongly divorced person ought not remarry. But the implication of the verse is that if you're divorced according to this exception, that divorce is allowable and remarriage is allowable at least for the innocent party. For the guilty party, we still want to see repentance and turning away from that sin. The exception cause applies both to permission for divorce and permission for remarriage. Now, there are people who will say, oh, no, no, that isn't right. Some of the most conservative evangelical New Testament exegetes, experts in the Greek and every other aspect of this would agree with what I'm saying to you. I'm not giving you some left-wing opinion. Once again, John Murray, a very conservative Bible scholar, says, quote, it is not feasible to construe that the exception clause applies only to the divorce and not to the remarriage. It applies to both if that condition is what you're facing. And so you could actually turn Matthew 5 and 19 around and make a positive statement out of it. Anyone who divorces and marries another person commits an adultery unless he does one of those things for the cause of sexual sin. Our Westminster Confession of Faith agrees with it. Chapter 24. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue for divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So you see, you have to extend your thinking a little bit. It's not just simplistic. You divorce and you cannot ever remarry. This passage does not say that. It says, if you would divorce according to this biblical exception, at least the innocent person in that transaction is free to remarry, and the guilty one may be if they would repent and would see the wrong of their action. Again, I would like to go into 1 Corinthians 7 of one party deserting the other. I can't do it today. I'm thinking about doing it next Sunday, even though it's a departure from the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it's important probably to put these two things together. But just let me acknowledge that we're not dealing with that one today. 
Let me speak for a few minutes in conclusion about biblical compassion for divorced persons. And I issue a challenge. Would someone please come with your Bible in hand and show me any text of Scripture that says divorce, even if it occurs contrary to the exception that Jesus makes clear, is the unforgivable sin? Would you please come and show me that passage? Because I'll be very interested to see it. And if you cannot locate that reference, tell me why then we in the evangelical churches even many times have treated those who are divorced, whatever causal role they had as perpetrator or victim, as if they went around with a red scarlet D on the front of their clothing and were treated with mild contempt by those who have not experienced divorce. You and I sin every day against commandments of God. I'm sure I've sinned against five commandments of God before I walked in this building this morning. We can do that, you see. You don't see the minister's sins for the most part. And I can go away and if I tell a half-truth or spin the truth or think a hateful thought, and I can say, Lord, forgive me. I know that attitude's wrong. I repent. And I can expect repentance to bring forgiveness from the Lord. Why can someone who has divorced wrongly, perhaps, not go to the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, I am completely bereft. I see what I've done. It's terrible. It was wrong. I should not have treated my wife that way. I repent in dust and ashes. Is that person able to find God's forgiveness? Do you really believe that they're in some special category? That God says, Sorry, you wear the big D. You can't be forgiven. Certainly we know if your divorce happened before you became a believer in Jesus Christ, it was concluded in all of that, that, that massive mountain of things that had to be forgiven when you were made a new creature in Christ. But even if you have divorced, and even if you have rather deliberately sinned in this manner, as a Christian, as a professed Christian, could we look to David, for example, in the 51st Psalm? Here was a sorrowful, broken-hearted believer. He had blatantly caused adultery, been the perpetrator of adultery with Bathsheba. And then later on, he prayed in the 51st Psalm, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Do you think he didn't mean it? Or do you think he was just speaking out into the air a prayer that God couldn't answer? Or don't you think it's just possible, and I think it's more than possible, but it was factual, that David really was repentant, and God really did forgive him. Don't you believe that the deliberate instigator of adultery can be forgiven? Well, maybe you're saying, yes, Pastor, sure, I believe that, but you know what's going to happen if you let people hear you say that. They're going to run out and commit adultery just so they can run back to God and say, forgive me, forgive me. No, we're not just going to sin more so grace can abound more. But if we are truly broken and truly sorrowful and truly used up by the scars and the 
broken relationships and the people you can't even talk to anymore, people who will turn away when they see you, and you go to God and say, oh God, I have sinned. Will you sweep that chapter of my life away? I will make peace as I'm able to, but I need you to forgive me above all. Are you going to tell me God cannot forgive even the rank perpetrator of adultery that breaks two marriages and ruins things for so many? I urge you, I am not preaching a message here to encourage divorce. If you hear that, I don't know what you're listening to. You're not listening to me. I am trying to remind you that the grace of God is ever available to everyone in the broken history of marriages that go wrong. In closing, I want to say this to you. Ephesians 5 puts it that our relation with Christ as Savior and Lord is like having a marriage. Paul said there in Ephesians 5, as he talked about marriage, he said, you realize I'm really talking about the relationship of Christ and the church. Oh, well, that makes even us men have to think of ourselves as the bride. That's a little, takes a little adjustment, but we can do that. All right, then I call you to realize that Jesus Christ, the great divine bridegroom, has taken a vow to me and to you as members of his church, his bride. Here's the vow he said at our marriage ceremony when I came to him and acknowledged him as my Lord. I, Jesus, son of the highest, take you, a ruined and guilty sinner, to be my bride on the earth. And I do promise and covenant to be your loving Savior and strong Lord in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, No matter how far you might stray from me, I make a pledge to you for all eternity, and my promise is sealed in the blood of my cross. Once you belong to me, you might do anything against me, but I will never divorce you. Your bridegroom has said that to you, man or woman. How would knowing that change your relationship? to a husband or wife here on this earth. Our Father, here's one of the great mysteries. You gave the highest and holiest relation that two people can have, and you've trusted that relationship into the hands of weak sinners, weak people uh, whose eyes stray and see some other lovely individual or someone who's nicer or kinder or more attractive than the spouse that we have. And Wrong things start to happen. Forgive us, O God, even for the beginning thoughts of wandering from our marital partner. Help us to see that there is reconciliation. There can be, if we will repent, no matter what stage we're in of these things. And Father, may we never forget the wonderful grace that you have for all those who belong to you through Jesus Christ. And so, meet us in our need. We need to be like that prodigal who came and said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. And we know what you'll do in response. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.